it's Michael Benner with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School from Los Angeles. We have a special program for you this time around. This is an interview, not by me, but of me, by a fellow named Tony Durso, who does a radio program on blog talk radio called Revenue Chat. It's about the executive excellence program that I do for businesses, large corporations, small to medium-sized businesses, and entrepreneurs to executives, supervisors, managers, and such. But it contains some really valuable information on motivation and leadership skills, which I think you'll like a lot. We're drawing a lot from mindfulness and emotional intelligence, relationship management too. So settle back and give a listen. This will run just under 60 minutes. Executive excellence, as I'm interviewed by Tony Durso. Hope you enjoy it, and if you're a subscriber to our premium audio series, stay tuned for more to follow. Hi, everyone. This is Tony Gerso with Revenue Chat, brought to you by Easy Sales Procedures. With us, we have Michael Benner, author of an upcoming new book, Fearless Intelligence, which is to be released in 2016. A graduate of Michigan State University with a BA degree in journalism and television and radio management, Michael has been awarded lifetime certification as an instructor of communication arts by the California Community College's Board of Governors. He currently teaches self-awareness at the Orange County Sheriff's Academy through the Rancho Santiago Community College and has also taught at Mount St. Antonio College in Walnut, California. Now, Michael has received formal accolades and awards from the United Nations Association, the California State Senate, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, the American Red Cross, the Glendale Family YMCA, the Live and Learn Center, the National Leukemia Broadcast Council, and the Glendale JCs. Michael's website is michaelbenner.com. All right, get ready for Michael to give us some insight into increasing our productivity by adjusting our mindset, among other things. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hello, Tony. I'm doing great. Better and better. I love that response. Well, thank (laughs) you so much for being on our show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I've been looking forward to it very much. So you're all about executive excellence. So let me ask you to start this off, Michael. What would you say is the weakest part of most businesses? In other words, the area that usually needs the most improvement. Yeah, without hesitation, I would say relationship management, personnel management, anything to do with people, personnel, customers, vendors, jobbers, executives, the people that work for you and the people you work for, you know, Often a banker knows banking, and a butcher knows how to cut meat, and a baker makes great bread and cinnamon rolls, but whether they're entrepreneurs or small to medium-sized businesses or big corporations, I've found that people skills, understanding how to really empathize with people, to connect not only at the head, but to connect at the heart. That's what it takes to be a good leader and to motivate your people to do your best. 
Yeah, I think the military, oddly, has done some really interesting research into this field. Like, what does it take to get a soldier to follow some commander that he doesn't really know very well, at least initially, into war and risk his life and do what he's told to do? Good point. How do they do that, Michael? Well, they create a quality of loyalty that few in the business world really understand how to create. Uh, We don't know how to treat people, frankly. And the reason for that, and this is important, is most of us do not understand ourselves very well. This is the field of emotional intelligence. And if you don't understand yourself, you're not going to recognize what other people are up to, what makes them tick. In order to empathize, you have to, first of all, have a sense of why you think and feel and act the way you do. That's interesting, Michael. And you mentioned the military, so forgive me, I have to ask. We've got, let's just say, a threatening situation, and I don't know the military hierarchy too well, so you have some sergeant, captain, general, and he's got to tell these people, hey, you got to go out here. And why does that person... That commander, why is it important for him to know who he is or be himself? Is that what you're trying to say? And the better he is himself, the better he can command. Can you expound on that a little? Yeah, because if you can't feel another person, if you can't connect at the heart, if you don't know what motivates them or what they care about, think about the word care. What do you care about? Why do you care? If you don't understand yourself, then you're not going to recognize that in other people. What that leaves you with is authority. And it's the commander that says, who's not the best commander, whether it's a military or a small business, who says to his troops or his employees, do it because I said so. Do it because there's going to be negative consequences if you don't. Do it because there's 30 people that want your job, and they'll probably do it better for less money. And that kind of, we all know bosses like that, and it's the main reason people hate their jobs. They may love the actual task that they're performing, and they may be very good at it. But in most cases, what people hate about their jobs is the way they're managed. And so we talk in our training in executive excellence about the importance of driving power down. I do a training called Commander to Coach. It's one of several. And in Commander to Coach, we teach executives and supervisors how to go from being that authoritative negative, threatening boss to a coach who empowers his players, who doesn't micromanage and grab the ball out of their hands and push them out of the way and say, here, let me show you how to do it. They encourage the boys and girls in the lower schools and the young men and the young women in college and Olympic sports to do their best. And This is driving power down, and the best bosses that we have in business, in commerce, are people that understand that they're training their replacements. 
So by driving power down, we lift people up through the organization, promote from within, and create a team spirit, a team of leaders. You see, it's not like there's leaders and then there's the team. We're creating teams of leaders who work together, and there's a symbiosis where we get much more done. Personal performance goes up, productivity goes up, of course, the bottom line goes up, uh, customer service improves, and you can't get people to leave an organization like that. And if the union boss ever shows up on the doorstep, the employees will chase him down the road. They, <laughs> they don't want anything to do with the union if they have a boss that treats them like your coach treated you. Most managers who opt for the old-school, authoritative, fear-based management are managing the way they were parented. And True. There's more books on business management than how to be a good parent. And True. And you never want to hold on. A lot of, you know, think of the, of the old-school uh, parenting where you're going to follow me into the business, you're going to do what I do, um, and you're going to be damn good at it, and it's going to be a family business. And when do your parents ever check in with you and say, well, what do you want? What would you like to be? And, of course, some do. Those are the best parents. And so the best bosses in business are those women and men that say, how can I help you? You see, not do what I say or they're, you know, it's going to be hell to pay. So driving power down to create a leadership engine that lifts people up through the organization and teaching the executives at the top how to understand their own emotional awareness so that they can empathize with others and recognize what other people are going through. That's very interesting, Michael. And earlier on, you made me think of something. And I thought of the concept or quality, actually, of self-confidence. And I remember hearing this a long time ago, that people are attracted to those who are self-confident. And wherever I've worked, and I see this in the boss, I see that confidence, and it makes someone want to be part of it. There's some quality about it. Does your program help give the person who wants, who needs to be the leader, does it help give him that self-confidence? People are going, yeah, I want to join you. Definitely. It's one of the qualities of self-awareness. Self-awareness stands behind everything, Tony. There's basically... But in Eastern philosophy thousands of years ago was called the five aggregates. And they are very quickly our perception of the world around us through our physical senses, what we see and hear and touch and smell and taste. That's the first aggregate, perception of the world around you. Then there is behavior. And think of how much of our behavior is deliberate and purposeful compared to how much of our behavior, especially at work, is autonomic and reflexive, done without really very much thought at all, or maybe just a knee-jerk reaction to some emotional feeling. You got angry and said something or did something, you almost immediately regret it. And so the third and the fourth aggregates are the emotional and mental intelligence, so 
perception of the world, your behavior, your thoughts and feelings. Well, the fifth and final aggregate, Tony, is awareness in all of the previous four areas. It's one thing to look at the world around you. It's another thing to be meta-aware. In other words, to be aware of how aware you are. You see? That's an interesting concept, aware of being aware. Right. Now, we all know the experience of sitting at a traffic light after it's turned green and some joker behind you has to lay on the horn before you snap too. And it, it's it wasn't the, me. <laughs> I suspect it's been all of us at some point or other. It's I've a never function. done that. <laughs> Haven't you really? Well, maybe you're no. a very aware fellow. It's, but, my, uh, Italian, it's my Italian comedy. <laughs> well, most of us have, I assure you. And uh, that's an example of a lack of awareness in the moment. It doesn't mean we're stupid. It doesn't mean we're ignorant or foolish or not very bright. It just means the lights are on, but nobody's home. We're thinking of something else. Our awareness is redirected. In school, when we were daydreaming about playing baseball after school got out or chasing girls or riding their bikes or whatever, we got in trouble for doing that, but it's not because we weren't thinking creatively. We were. We just weren't thinking about the lesson at hand. And who doesn't know the Very experience? True. Yeah. And who doesn't know the experience of not being able to find your car keys? Now, this is especially interesting, I think, Tony, because we blame our memories and we say, oh, man, I can't find my car keys and I'm running late. Damn it, this always happens to me, wouldn't you know it? I, I just can't remember where I put my car keys. But here's the deal. If the night before, when you had set your car keys down, you took three seconds or less and stopped everything long enough to look at those keys, watch yourself putting them down with full awareness, and said, I'm putting my keys here, I mean, silently to yourself, you said, I'm putting down my keys here. This will be easy to remember. It will be easy to remember, and you'll never forget where your keys are, because what it means the next morning when you, quote, don't remember where your keys are, we blame the memory, but there is no memory to to call upon. It's It's an empty space where... We weren't present. We weren't aware when we put the key down. So how could you remember it? You could be a memory expert, but if you were thinking about something else, when you put the keys down, you're not going to remember. So in our stressful lifestyles, overworked, overstimulated, too much going on, too much input, the more stressed we are, the more scattered our attention because the brain's trying to save us from danger. It thinks we're in danger when we're stressed. So our attention is scattered instead of focused. We become less aware of these four aggregates, less aware of the world around us, less aware of choosing our behavior so it's more reflexive, less aware of what we think and why we think it, and less aware of the feelings going on. So that Have you ever seen somebody that was 
screaming, I am not angry, and their face is all red, and their fists are clenched, and they're obviously angry, and yet they're yelling, I am not angry, and if you say that again, I'm going to punch you in the face, and yes. they're denying their <laughs> anger while they're angry, right? Yep. Well, on yep. the other hand, yep. on the other hand, what would it be like if you were willing to develop the talent to be aware of your anger while it's still a mile away, just a little guy way out on the horizon, and you said to yourself, Tony, we're starting to get upset in this situation. We're starting to get angry, and if we don't do something to manage this anger, it's going to get all over us, and it's going to make us say and do things that we're going to later regret. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to forget things. We're going to miss opportunities to be excellent, all because we're unaware. So the highest form of intelligence, my friend, is awareness. Above mental intelligence, above emotional intelligence, and above anything physical, awareness is the highest form of intelligence there is and how many people are even aware of what self-awareness means. So. Michael, I, li I like this very much, but it's beginning to sound like a religious program. Isn't that usually a connotation with religion? No. No, okay. of course not. In fact, uh, it probably owes more to sports psychology. This uh, oh. In the 1970s, uh, sports psychology came on the scene and athletes, um, professionals and Olympic athletes and amateur athletes began to visualize. And they would, depending on the situation, if they were in the game, they would visualize and use their imagination with their eyes open. But before the game, they would close their eyes. I remember interviewing Chuck Norris in the early 1970s. How and, cool. I mean, we were both just kids in our 20s at the time, and he was uh, traveling around promoting a kickboxing tournament way back then before he was ever on TV. And I asked him about visualization and guided imagery, and I said, do you or other martial arts experts that you know use guided imagery and visualization. He said, oh, yeah. He said, most of us learned it from Bruce Lee, but Arnold Palmer does it, and uh, all kinds of other athletes learn to do this. So this is 50, 60 years old, this information, just in its application in sports. So awareness is everything, and if you find it spilling over into your sense of religion or spirituality, well, I can understand that because there's no area of your life where awareness isn't critical to living. I mean, uh, I'll tell you a quick little story. I was, uh, I was driving around the west side of L.A. with my wife one afternoon, and we decided we wanted a cup of coffee and so uh, I knew a uh, coffee shop in West Hollywood and uh, up on the Sunset Strip, and we shot up there. And she went to the counter and got coffees for each of us, and I lingered at the uh, pastry counter and ended up 
yielding to the temptation to go ahead and buy something uh, chocolatey and and caloric and rationalized it in my own head as we do. And I had my little espresso brownie in the bag and we jumped in the car and off we went down the Sunset Strip. Now, the Strip is a trip, right? There's people watching (laughs) any time of the day or night. There's these giant billboards and people parading up and down the boulevard. There's new cafes to watch. And we got to the end of the Strip and I was going to make a left on uh, Crescent Heights and go over the into the valley there, and I reached for my brownie, and it was gone. Heaven forbid! Oh no! And we don't have a dog. I couldn't blame the dog, and I knew Doreen hadn't eaten it because if she'd wanted one, she would have bought one while we were there. And so I shifted my attention to my mouth, and sure enough, there was a lingering flavor of chocolate on my palate and I realized I'd eaten the whole brownie and not tasted any of it. How funny. I know but I yet I know exactly what you mean. And then wow. and then another thought came to mind and I said to myself in my head, Oh my God, what if I wake up in my eighties in some I don't know, sanitarium or assisted living facility. And I realized my life's almost over and I forgot to pay attention to most of it. And that is the challenge that I put to you and everyone in your audience. How much of our lives are we missing? When you don't have time to play with your kids, when you don't have quality time for other members of your family, your spouse, your friends, if you don't delegate quality time for so-called leisure time activity and hobbies and other interests, because we're working so hard to make the money to live a lifestyle that we don't have the time to live, you have to ask yourself, Well, no wonder that last decade went by as if it were a year. No wonder I'm suddenly 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, and I have to count the decades on my fingers to keep track. Because just like sitting at the traffic light after it turns green, for most of us, at business, at home, in sports, any place, lights are on, but for the most of the time, nobody's home. We're not aware. We don't know why we think the way we think. We don't know why we feel or what we're feeling. We don't know why we behave the way we do. And most of the world around us, we miss. When was the last time you actually listened to the birds sing? When was the last time you sat outside and looked at the white puffy clouds like you did when you were seven or eight years old and riding your bike around the neighborhood and You'd roll down a grassy hill and lay there and look at the clouds or climb a tree or watch the ants build. I mean, I'm not saying as adults we should get down on our hands and knees and watch ants, but it might not hurt to wake up and pay attention to what we're missing. Ask yourself, what am I missing? And so those are amazing points, Michael. And I, and I must, I must say, Half of the time, I will go get a coffee because I didn't really sit and enjoy the prior one. And it's like, 
what? My coffee cup is empty. How does this happen? So I'll go get another coffee. It's because I just didn't take the time to enjoy it because I'm so busy focused on something else instead of the sort of like, instead of focused on the here and now. Yeah, I totally understand. I mean, I got to tell you, I get pushback all the time on this. And people say, Michael, that's airy-fairy, hippie, pie-in-the-sky, like you said, some sort of spiritual trip. I haven't got time for that. I'm a busy guy, right? (laughs) The point is that as we become more aware and more mindful, our productivity goes up. Our enjoyment of working with other people and our ability to lead them to do their best and be happy, to develop trust and respect. All of that goes up. Performance, productivity, your bottom line. Multitasking as a means of improving performance and productivity is a myth. There is study after study after study now that says multitasking destroys productivity. Really? Yo, definitely. Google it. Check it out. Don't believe a word I say. (laughs) When you break things down into little bite-sized pieces and mindfully do one thing at a time, your performance and your productivity will skyrocket. You'll get much more done. First of all, you're going to make fewer mistakes. You don't have to redo things. You're not going to lose things. And you're going to see all kinds of opportunities for improvement that you might have otherwise missed when you were doing five things at once. So I got to tell you, Mike, I am already enthused at this short conversation. I already see application in my workaday world immediately. And I'm actually, I'm enthused. You're getting me exhilarated. I what? totally am getting this point. And just really quickly on the remembering part. I love that. If I put the keys down or the best is I go to a mall or a new mall or a big mall and it's a busy shopping day and you have to park far away. Sometimes there's insufficient markers or I just don't pay attention to the markers because I'm so focused on shopping that when I come out of the mall two, three hours later, it's the age old question. All right, where did I park the car? But now I'm going to use your principle that you've mentioned. I'm going to pay attention. Okay, my car's here. I'm going to just focus for a moment. This is where my car is. And then go into the mall. I already know that that's going to work. And I'll, add never the forget, I'll never forget my car again. Go ahead. And, and add to that the affirmation. As you stop the world for two or three seconds, you just take a breath, give it two seconds, and stop the world. Stop your mind as if the world is not spinning (laughs) and the trains aren't running and the cars aren't moving. Nothing's happening for two seconds. What about the dancing clouds? (laughs) Well, they will still slide silently by. (laughs) Okay. But hear what I'm saying. Just two seconds to mindfully be aware of where your car is. Find some object to associate it with. Because memory always works by association. So say, oh, I'm by the elevator on the third floor. I see the number three in my mind. 
I remember that it's, but that'll be easy to remember by the elevator on the third floor. Turn, walk away, you never have to think about it again. You don't have to chant, you know, like people will go to the grocery store and they're going, milk, butter, bread, eggs, milk, butter, bread, eggs, peanut butter, milk, butter, bread, peanut butter, eggs, and they chant as if that's the only way to remember. If you just pause and stop your mind, this is all stress reduction. This is, they call it MBSR in the last 20 years now, mindfulness-based stress reduction. There are many forms of stress reduction, but learning to be mindful and self-aware requires you to let go of stress and anxiety and fear. And, you know, my book, Fearless Intelligence, which grew out of my police training at uh, the academy in Orange County, the Sheriff's Academy, is based on a very important premise, which is that whether we call our stress, our anxiety, our fear, whatever name we use for it, whether it's panic or horror or dread or on the other end, nervousness or mild apprehension or anything in the middle, it's all fear, it's all anxiety, it's all stress, whatever name we hook to it, but it has nothing to do with danger. Fear, stress, and anxiety is always an indication of something we do not understand. It's the brain's request for more understanding. And if danger is obvious, if there is clear and present danger, it's what you don't understand about the danger that's causing the fear, not the danger itself. Right, if you knew it was coming. Oh, I could. Uh, The more you know about a danger, I mean, that's why if you live in Tornado Alley, you prepare for tornadoes. If we live in earthquake country here in Southern California, we learn all about earthquakes. It doesn't make them any less dangerous, but it certainly reduces the fear. So true. I like that. Great concept. So that's fearless intelligence, the idea that fear makes us confused, and confusion is frightening. So it's a vicious cycle. Fear is a frightening word, and ignorance is an insulting word, but if we said fear makes us ignorant, and ignorance is scary and frightening, and that makes us more ignorant and more afraid, you feel that vicious cycle, you get caught up in that. It's like a toilet bowl flush. It just takes you down the drain. So fearless intelligence is the antidote as you manage stress and anxiety and learn to become without fear, free from fear, you become more aware and therefore more intelligence. Self-awareness, the highest form of intelligence, standing above mental, emotional, and physical. You know, that brings to mind very rapidly the only thing that I can think of that holds us and anyone back on performing any task, any project, doing anything, is fear. Fear of failure, fear of being insulted, fear of it not happening, but there's always a fear behind the inability to do something. Of course. That's very interesting. Fear fear is paralyzing. Now, here's another interesting thing. All fear is fear of the unknown. All fear is fear of the unknown. So the antidote, as Emerson said, is knowledge and understanding. Ralph Waldo Emerson, knowledge is the antidote to fear. He didn't say guns. He didn't say bullets. 
He didn't say uh, more guns or uh, more military or being mean and nasty or hostile or threatening people. He said understanding. See, this is the whole reason that it is, but the more you work with it, the easier it is to understand. Now, here's another interesting point about fear. If you think about the way it feels in the body, if you move your awareness right now into your body and remember a time that you were afraid or stressed or anxious or panicky or freaked out or even just nervous, you know, job interview, a first date, your test, uh, your bar exam, working with somebody this week who's preparing to take their bar exam, test preparation and performance anxiety and and all of that. If you register in your awareness how fear, stress, anxiety feels in your body, and then consider how excitement feels in your body, you'll find that they're very similar. They're not opposites. They're two sides of the same coin. Weak knees, fear and excitement. Uh, Girded loin, fear and excitement. Butterflies in the stomach, fear and excitement. Or as a friend of mine says, uh, in excitement, the butterflies fly in formation. (laughs) That's the only difference. In the heart, your heart palpitations, the lump in your throat, the sweaty palms, fear or excitement? Yes, both. So fear is holding on like a roller coaster. You're afraid of the roller coaster, you hold on. If you have very similar feelings, but you're excited, oh boy, instead of oh no, you put your hands in the air on the roller coaster. But it's always a combination of both. And the way to transform your fear, one of many ways that we teach, of transforming fear, stress, anxiety into excitement is to take a breath and let it go. Fear plus a breath and a letting go feeling turns into excitement. So the secret is to face your fear, embrace your fear, and step right into it. Rub your hands together instead of holding them up like, stop. You rub them together and go, oh boy, and you step right into it with as much awareness as you can bring to it. Not in a foolish way, but knowing that your experience of the fear is just the brain's request for more understanding. So if we run away from what we're afraid of, the fear chases you because it represents what you don't know. Only when you move into your stress and anxiety will you understand it and see it vaporize like a bad dream. It just whoosh, vaporizes before your very eyes. Is That's this- amazing. Just some of the secrets of fearless intelligence, of stress management, of, of self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and what increasingly is called mindfulness in the West. Now, Michael, I have to say that that last part sounds so easy, yet in application, it's difficult to do. So how long does it take you to train someone to be able to confront, accept, acknowledge, okay, the fear and let it go because it sounds easy, but on some people, I'm sure it takes more work. 
Great question, Tony. And this is where the guided imagery and visualization comes in. Remember, we talked about this in sports psychology when you said, gosh, this sounds almost religious. Yeah. Um, if you close your eyes in practice, or like many great athletes, learn to visualize, uh, even with your eyes open. I mean, I don't know what your game is. Maybe you like basketball or golf or uh, table tennis or regular uh, regular tennis on a court. What if you, in thinking, I want to send the ball in this direction, imagined in your mind's eye as you came around with your racket or as you pushed the basketball off the tips of your fingers, a dotted line going up, arching, and dropping right into the basket, and you heard the, the whoosh of a swish, perfect basket as you, you know, just a moment before you actually push the ball off. Or if you're putting in golf and you see a dotted line on the green and imagine the ball going along that dotted line. You see, for most people, they're so busy trying to avoid what they don't want, trying to avoid failure, and not understanding the laws of mind, so they end up attracting the very thing they're trying to avoid. If I say to you right now, do not think of a purple cow. Everybody thinks of a purple cow. Yep. But, but I said, don't do it. So if I say, don't forget, you're much more likely to forget than if I said, it'll be easy for you to remember. Ah. We need to be positive and affirmative. You see, that's, uh, and I always get a kick out of negative people who um, sort of uh, CYA try to cover their failure by saying they're realists. Uh, nobody ever, imagine archery, target shooting with a bow and arrow or a gun. Nobody ever shot a bullseye by trying to avoid missing the target. You have to put you have to put your attention on what you do want in life, and if we're busy trying to avoid what we don't want, the irony is you end up moving toward the very thing you don't want. I learned this riding motorcycles. If I came around the corner of a canyon and there's a rock in the road, if I look at the rock, I'm going to hit it. There's just no two ways around it. I can uh, counter-steer and throw my weight and turn the wheel one way and then the other, but if my eyes stay on the rock, I'm going to hit the rock. I need to look at the line around the rock in order to avoid it, an imaginary dotted line. I know this is what happened to Sonny Bono. It's been quite a few years now, but I'm sure a lot of people remember Sonny Bono was skiing I in Palm Springs. Smacked right into a tree. So sad. And what he did was he was looking at the tree while trying to avoid hitting it. But the laws of mind, the magnetic nature of self-awareness, it is magnetic. The brain is wired to go where you look, to get what you expect. And to reap what you sow. You want some religion? There's your religion. You reap what you sow. You know, plant an acorn, you're going to get an oak tree. It's not going to be a maple tree. It's not going to be a birch. It's not going to be rutabaga or potatoes. You plant an acorn, you get an oak tree, right? 
You want corn? So you got to plant corn. So if you look in at what you don't want, you're likely to create what you don't want. And then you wonder why you're stressed out. And then people take this bizarre satisfaction in saying, oh, no, I screwed it up again. Oh, that always happens to me. Well, it always happens to you because it's what you expect. It's what you're looking at. It's what you're focused on, whether whether you're afraid of it or not. If you're focused on it, it's what you're going to get. So train yourself to focus on what you want, not on what you don't want, and you'll wind up getting it. Is that right? Exactly. Now, I have a technique that I include in my training called worry once, because we would be foolish to never look at the negative. So we've got to look at a couple of ways this project could go south, or a couple of things that I might have overlooked, or some contingencies that I hadn't really thought about. So let me take a minute or two to do that, or a day or two, or a brainstorming session with my team to look at all of that. But once we've uh, fleshed that out, now we go with the positive, we stay with the positive, we expect the positive, we track the positive. Do you know 15%, Tony, one five, only 15% of business people set goals? I didn't know it was so low. That's amazing. Because, you know, in my book, Easy Sales Procedures, which just recently got released, and I think it's chapter two, I thoroughly discuss purpose, goals, long-term objectives, and how to get them because it is so important because you'll never get it if you don't plan for it. It's not just thinking quickly, oh, I want this. You got to plan. You got to have that purpose. You got to put it all there together. Because it's tough enough sometimes without it. First the goal, then the plan. There's a great George Harrison song, one of the last he ever wrote. The lyric is something like, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. So, so true. Isn't that? See how smart that is? So we've got to set goals. How can you move toward what you want? And this is why people don't have what they want. They don't know what they want. They put the plan ahead of the goal. They think, well, I'll defer the goal. I'll just plan and plan. And as I get closer, I'll set a goal. Closer to what? If you don't have a goal, you're not going anywhere. You see, you've got to have a goal or a dream to determine the direction to get off dead center. Now you begin to plan and move toward that goal, that specific, accurate, detailed goal. And as you approach it, you may want to consider modifying it. As you get closer, you may want to change it a little bit. You know, I've decided I want the red one instead of the green one, or I want the four-door instead of the two-door, or whatever. (laughs) Or my sales quota, I'm going to raise that sales quota and let the miracles happen, right? So this is a science. This is Napoleon Hill. This is Dale Carnegie. This is Norman Vincent Peale. This is Zig Ziglar. This is Jim Rohn. This is Tony Durso. This is all the success authors for 100 years have been writing this and how anybody can be in business and not invest in themselves is a mystery. I know why they do it. They're afraid of themselves. 
They're afraid. Let's come full circle. People are afraid of knowing who they are. And yet, what's the oldest wisdom in the world? Know thyself. So true. Well, I hope all this, all the audience listening now and in the future go to your site and begin learning more about this because I'm very impressed. That site is michaelbenner.com. And while we have just a few minutes left, <clears throat> excuse me, I did want to ask something about your book. I believe you have an entire chapter on something that sounds the same, uh, on knowledge and understanding, yet there's a very specific distinction that I think some of us would really like to know about. Could you expand on that, please? Yeah, um, we use knowledge semantically, the term knowledge, often to imply understanding. In other words, when we mean understanding, we'll say knowledge or to know something. But in the late 1980s, in the field of information management, as personal computers were replacing many computers and mainframes in business, and information management was becoming more of a science, everybody was learning spreadsheets and such, there came a need to organize information, data management, and out of that came something known as the DIKW hierarchy, or the DIKW pyramid. And what that stands for from the bottom up, if you think of a pyramid, the D is for data. Data is just raw numbers, information in fields, you know, like you fill out a form, name, age, the date of birth, address, telephone number, Social Security, that, that's data, right? Yeah. Information is the second tier or level of the hierarchy. First data, the raw numbers or the text from the field. Information is when we organize it in meaningful ways. So data could be words and numbers, but information is sentences and paragraphs, okay? Knowledge is where you organize these paragraphs into chapters, so to speak, or a report where conclusions can be drawn. And we begin to, again, I want to say understand. Let's say knowledge is the beginning of understanding, but it's a perception that goes beyond simple information. So these are the first three levels of the pyramid from the bottom up, raw data, and then organizing that data into information, and then organizing the information into knowledge. Now, most people stop there, but this hierarchy, and this can be Googled easily, it's all over the place in Google, the top tier, the capstone of the pyramid is W, and that's wisdom or understanding. Ah, I'm getting it. Got it. The way, the way wisdom or understanding is superior to knowledge as well as data and information. The way wisdom or understanding is superior to knowledge is, at the very least, it includes application 
in a variety of unexpected or unanticipated ways. Like I have the knowledge, but if you don't understand it, how do you apply it? Right. And another thing we could say that's in wisdom or understanding that is absent in knowledge is understanding what you do not know. Knowledge is only what you know. Understanding is knowing what you do not yet know. Ah, interesting. And there are few people in this world that do not know, are not aware of how little they know. and That's very deep. It's challenging to say to somebody, in fact, I don't recommend it, you know, because you sound arrogant and conceited and superior. I'm smarter than you. I understand things that you don't know. But there is a... Um, it's sometimes called the American Idol Effect. This has been studied uh, in university by, I think it's called the Dunning-Krieger Effect. I know one of the scientists was Dunning. The Dunning-Krieger Effect. And it's the phenomena, again, sometimes called the American Idol Effect, of people not being aware of how little they know. So it's like somebody who gets on American Idol thinking they're really good and not having the awareness to realize how bad they really are. Wow. And you see this in many areas. You'll see, you know, your crazy uncle after five beers on Thanksgiving start talking about politics or religion or whatever as if he knows what he's talking about. And while reasonable people can disagree and everybody has a right to their opinion, but there is such a thing as not knowing what you don't know. And so somebody who realizes how little we know is said to be wise. This is Socrates. Socrates, in his trial for corrupting the youth of Athens, about 500 B.C., was asked, why are you the wisest man in all of Greece? The oracle at Apollo had pronounced that Socrates was the wisest of all men. And Socrates, with that confidence you were talking about earlier, stood up in court and he said, well, it's very simple. The reason I'm the wisest of all the people in Greece is that only I realize how little I know. All of you are fools, for you think you know something, and you're not aware of how little you really understand. So Socrates advises us to stand at the shore of an ocean that is unbounded and unlimited and full of information we've yet to understand. And so a confident person is not a person who thinks he knows everything, but confident in a balanced way means having the wisdom, the awareness, the understanding of recognizing what you still don't yet know or understand that's very interesting it's like being humble if you're humble and know that there's much more to know you rise up in wisdom because you understand that and you're also wind up going on the path towards learning more and knowing more because you recognize that there's more to learn right you're always curious that's another thing yeah. to do with fear. Uh, another, th- another strategy for dealing with fear and stress and anxiety is simply be curious. 
You know, if you're not curious, then you're always going to run away, run away. You know, like that Monty Python movie, the killer rabbit shows up and they go, run away, run away. And I don't know if you know that scene, but it's hilarious. And uh, again, if we recognize that fear by any name does not represent danger, but merely what we do not understand, whether dangerous or not, then you run directly into your fear. You don't run away from it because then you're running away from the understanding. To understand what you don't understand, you got to face it, embrace it, take a breath, say, oh boy, here we go. Not in a foolish way or reckless way, of course, but nevertheless, with that humility of this is an opportunity for me to learn more. People are afraid of failure, and yet, how else do you learn? Correct. How else do you get experience? You have to go exactly. forward. Exactly. So that brings up a point kind of similar to the fear point in question and confidence, but maybe it's different, and maybe you could clarify that. Michael, I'm talking about the difference between instinct, that would be gut feeling, and intuition. Like, and how that plays against fear. Maybe you could help clarify all those points. Well, when we manage our fear, stress, anxiety, whether it's panic or mild apprehension and nervousness to, to any degree, when we manage that, we get access to a higher brain function called intuition. A mistake people often make is to call their intuition a gut feeling. A gut feeling is instinct, and it's fear-based. It's an animal instinct. It's the herd mentality. Instinct is a animal herd mentality, fear-based, oh no, run away. You scare one animal in the flock of birds or the school of fish or the gaggle of geese or the herd of you know buffalo or whatever you get a couple of them scared they start running they all run right that's yeah. not intuition that's instinct that's that's down in your belly your solar plexus that's the gut feeling intuition is a higher more refined frequency it's in the area of the heart or just below the heart aspiring to the heart and it's not fear-based it's love-based it's again awareness and it comes as light it's enlightenment it's the good idea like imagine going into a dark room and it's sort of scary in there and you realize well you know what are you afraid of well nothing really i'm just i can't see into the shadows so i'm not knowing what's in the shadows, I'm sort of scared. So you turn on the light, you can see the shadows, and now there's nothing to be afraid of. Well, intuition comes like light. It may be the dawning, a gradual dawning of a new idea. It may be the archetype of the light bulb popping on, and you may be thunderstruck, and your life changed forevermore by some epiphany. But whether it's a gradual dawning or an explosive experience of the top of your head coming off. It's always uh, an experience of being enlightened or illumined. And uh, it's a positive, love-based, and I'm talking here not about love as an emotion, 
but love as awareness, understanding, or wisdom. And you said my website is michaelbenner.com, which is true. That's also a gateway to another site I have called theagelesswisdom.com. And if people go to michaelbenner.com, they can see executive excellence training. They can see the ageless wisdom. They push that button, and they'll be able to sign up for my free newsletter at theagelesswisdom.com. But you can go in through michaelbenner.com. Thank you, Michael. Yes, I see on your site there's executive excellence training, the ageless wisdom, and a couple other things. So, yeah, it makes it very simple for anyone to just get to those points. Well, yeah, I would Michael? say my – I'm sorry, say again? No, I was just going to say uh, – I was just going to wrap that that up, that part up. Anything else you want like to say about the executive excellence or the ageless wisdom? I mean, this is where they'll get their training, right? The book will come out next year. I do all kinds of seminars, training, half-day, full-day, weekend retreats, keynote addresses for corporations and small business. I train executives and supervisors in business, uh, as well as the Sheriff Academy training. And uh, the book will be out next year. And I just want to thank you, Tony, for interviewing me and doing such a fine job. Let me be on your brand new radio show here on Blog Talk Radio. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on this show. It was great. Thank you again Uh, so much. And again, everyone, Michael's website, uh, where you'll find Ageless Wisdom and Executive Excellence, that website, simply go to Michael, B as in boy, E-N-N-E-R dot com. 